Good morning. Um, okay, so uh, it's interesting that uh, we watched that Conquest series just now, and one of the words mentioned in this video was legacy. And so, yeah, the next slide, you know, uh, legacy. I'm not sure what the dam has to do with legacy, but just of a cool black and white picture. <laughs> I thought it's, uh, it's a nice picture, so I'll just put it there. Okay, so legacy. It's very thematic, don't you think? What is legacy? That would be my next slide. So when I started thinking about this, I was a little bit stressed out. Like, legacy, man, I'm still young. I haven't done anything yet. There's a lot of people older than me. They have their own stuff going on, and they would know they are more qualified to speak about legacy than me. But uh, somehow the Holy Spirit led me to this. And it is true because he spoke to me a decade ago about this a little bit. Uh, I'll come back to that very quickly. So, I have a short video to show you. When I was young, when I was growing up, I started thinking about the great man and their great legacies. And one of the great men that I grew up learning about was this man in this video. One of the greatest speech ever made. goosebumps in there. One of the most epic speeches, you know, made in the Capitol Hill. Let freedom ring. And so you grow up with people like that telling you what a great man Martin Luther King is, or JFK, or Mother Teresa, and the various other people that have left great legacies behind. And then you start getting older, and you start to realize, wait a minute, there's more to this man than what I learned. I learned about his sinful natures. He and JFK had the same sinful natures, very, very vivid, very bad sinful natures. That doesn't take away from his legacy, but they don't tell us about that. And all the statues you build up of them all suddenly started crumbling, and you realize that, wait a minute, there's no one to emulate. There's no one to actually say, that was a good man. You know, there's certain parts of the life were great, but certain parts so deeply flawed. So how can we then create a legacy? We are so deeply flawed. Um, so, it, the things that we build up, our legacies, like blocks, you know, you think about you know, Julius Caesar and the great Roman emperors and, and, and the Byzantine emperors or the Egyptians, they build these great pyramids and stuff like that. And what do we know of them? We know of Julius Caesar, but what do we know about him? You know, it reminds me of a, of a poem, a short poem by Percy Shelley. Uh, it's called Ozymandias. In it, the poem says this. It's about a lone traveler that comes across this broken piece of wood on the floor in the, in the grains of sand. And this is why it said, next slide. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. 
Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. But nothing besides remain round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That's what becomes our, of our man-made legacies. Just dead on the ground, some letters, all a colossal wreck. Nobody can see it, nobody knows it. So they got me to thinking, and I started doing a bit of research on it a lot. And, you know, my sermon's inspired by Joseph Prince from Singapore, Peter Energy from Philippines, and uh, Elevation Church sermons as well. So I started thinking about legacy and it became, okay, what is a godly legacy then? What's the legacy that I want to pass on? And this is actually something that 10 years ago came to me when I was like 21 and such. And, you know, when you're in church, you're young and you're single and, you know, you start to give up opportunities and, and how's it going? You start exploring it and, you know, it's like, God, which one is it, God? Is it her? Is it this or is that her? Like, what is it? Tell me, tell me. You know, like everyone's hitching and I've got no one yet. Which one is it? And so I was exploring opportunities. I was like dating and it was, you know, just wasn't at peace with it, right? And so, and so as I was going on this journey over there, and then I knew God said, you know what? That one Sunday when this was at its peak, you know, I'm going to speak to you today from the pulpit. I'm like, okay, is it a sermon? He didn't answer back. So what is it? So I knew going to that church that day, I was going to call out. And I was actually very scared. I was afraid. I didn't want to go to church, but I had to go because I knew God told me to go. I didn't want to go to church. And I was like, man, God, you're going to embarrass me. Like, what's going to happen? It's like, you know, like, what's going to happen here? And so I sat in the seat, and lo and behold, it was a, a, a traveling preacher, a, a guest preacher who was preaching that day. So he doesn't know anything about me. And so I was like, in the whole time, I was feeling dread because Sometimes we fear more about what God would do than what actually He does. We forget that who He actually is. He's a loving God, full of grace, full of mercy. And when He corrects you, it's in love. And it doesn't put you to shame. That's the best thing about Jesus. He doesn't correct you in shame. If you feel shamed, that's not Jesus. He always elevates you and reminds you of who you are in Christ. And so, the preacher is preaching. All of a sudden, he stops. He looks at me. He points at me, young man. I was like, oh no, here he comes. <laughs> What's he going to say? He tells me in the most graceful words you can ever say, God is telling me for you to relax relationally. I know what you mean. Relax relationally. That's it. And he went back to preaching. Boom. I was like, wow, that was actually good. That was actually very graceful. Yeah. That was so lovingly done. I was like, you couldn't put it in better words. So I was like, okay, God. I surrender, and I didn't think about it. But I was still questioning, like, why not? Like, these are good, you know, good uh, Christian girls and such. Like, so what's going on here? What's going on here? It's not until years later, I realized what God was trying to say. He was talking to me about marriage, right? That's what I was thinking about. And he said, and this was a few years later, and so that's when I started understanding what marriage was and what legacy was. See, I was just thinking about now, okay? You know, like this person, and they're going to marry, yeah, maybe her kids, grandkids. But God said, yeah, but I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking more into that. I was thinking seven generations down or 14 generations down. You were just thinking about now. I'm thinking about through time. I was like, whoa. That's when I started learning about Jonathan Edwards. 
We learned about his lineage. Like, wow, you know, granddaughter was uh, married to, uh, to one of the presidents of the United States. His grandson was a vice president of the United States. And he goes on and goes on. Like, wow, he has imp- like, impacted the American history so much, more than the history books tell us. So it's like, whoa, and God revealed all that to me. And I, was, I finally understood what marriage was. It wasn't about my legacy. It was his glory being displayed. Not my, it's nothing to do with me. It was his. It, he created marriage. So it's his purpose has to be fulfilled, not mine. And in that I submitted, and in it I find a lot of joy. And thank God I met Anne after that. It was a decade later, a decade later. Right? And so I told him, why didn't you tell me this earlier? Like, you know, like when I was going through all these things. He said, you wouldn't have listened. He had a timing for it. He knew where my heart was in the right place to accept and listen to the truth. You can listen to the truth and still reject it. Or feel, okay, it's not, it's not a time yet. But he's waiting for the right time to tell me so when I'm fully able to receive it and understand the depth of it. Yeah, funny enough, uh, my aunt's name, uh, my wife's name is Anne, which is a derivative of the Hebrew word Hana, which means the grace of God. So every time I wake up, I'm waking up to the grace of God. That was grace. <laughs> okay, so the Proverbs we want to look at is this chapter. Chapter 13, verse 22, and it says very clearly, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So children's children, and God told me that way before I even knew about this Proverbs, right? It's like seven, 14 generations down. I was like, wow. So a godly legacy is, is an eternal legacy. It's not just of this earth. He's thinking way through time, outside of time, actually. And so with that, I got to think about what's eternal then. What's an eternal legacy? How do we get into the eternal truth we're talking about here? And so, I was thinking about this, you know, and, and I'm learning a lot from my marriage right now. I'm growing a lot more. I grew up to a certain space. Now with Anne, I'm growing a lot more as well, spiritually and the interpretation of scriptures and, and, and such. I was like, wow, this is shaping me, you know? And I also found out a few other things that, you know, like, for example, I don't need to use so many kitchen paper towels and they are, they are expensive. Or like, you know, hey, the toilet bowl and the bathtub has to be cleaned weekly, even though they look really clean. So it doesn't matter how they look, apparently, it's, you've got to clean it weekly. So, in terms of eternal legacy-wise, I was thinking about, okay, God, if eternal legacy has to be grounded in eternal truth, and eternal life, and it goes me to the next slide, which is in John chapter 17, Verse 3, and found this very interesting. It says, Indeed, I count everything. I'm sorry, Philippians uh, 5, uh, 3, 8 to 10. Indeed, I count, this is Paul's writing to his, uh, to Philippians. Interesting, Paul had no kids, right? Not that we know of. So what his legacy? Us. God has created an eternal legacy through Paul. He was a Pharisee. He was... He was thinking about building his own legacy till he was stopped by Christ on his tracks. So, he has no kids. But wow, look where we are today. The freedom that we have through his scriptures, through Romans, through that, and to, uh, to other churches. That's amazing. So, Philippians 3, 8, 10, and this is very interesting. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
So, the worth of knowing Christ Jesus surpasses everything. He's talking about the supremacy of Christ. How do we then? So I started thinking, wow. Like, so this is where this, today's sermon would be a little bit different. It would be speaking of Jesus, but not about Jesus. So this would be more like a part two sermon. The part one would be all about Jesus. So he counts everything else as worthless, as rubbish. Actually, the Greek word for rubbish there, it's dung. Right? So it's even more crude, actually, what he wrote over there. He counted it all as useless, pointless. And in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of, from God that depends on faith. And so, there's something else he talked about here, which is very interesting. How do you know Christ is worth it? He got to link it back to righteousness. That's what he's going into here. And this is a, actually a statement that speaks of so much freedom that has set a German monk free in the 16th century. This is one of the key sermon, things that he wrote about, which is righteousness is not of my own, but it comes from Jesus. There is a righteousness from law. But he, he's, and actually, if you read Philippians uh, chapter 3 and verse 1 to 5, Paul tells you straight up, man, like he tells you, I fulfilled every law out there. No one can be more righteous than me in terms of the law. Wow. Like, he said it. He knows it. He does it. He is saying, he said, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. He traces lineage back from the tribe of Benjamin. He calls himself the most righteous man ever. And all of a sudden he's saying, but the righteousness from Christ is far more greater. Because when he thought he built his legacy up, and Christ came into him, and he realized that his legacy was worthless. Completely worthless. And I was like, wow, God. It reminds me of a, of a vision I had a few years ago. And it was very interesting because I was completely naked, walking in the shadows of this, of this particular place. It's, very, it's in heaven and it's, it's kind of weird. And there's a huge golden, golden wall that just goes around it. And in it is the eternal city. I know it. There's life. There's joy in there. And I'm walking outside it and trying to figure a way to get in. And at the time, I realized that was a shadow of the valley of death. It's not so much you fear pain when you die, but it's the miserableness of existence you've come into, into realization. It's like, wow, that's the shadow of the valley of death. That's, it's misery. And I felt all that misery. It was just a one little tiny bit of the actual misery we would feel. And I was like, wow. And I was just like, okay, I'm walking along this wall. It's all golden wall. I can't get in. I was like, and I felt my name was worthless. My, my legacy was worthless. All the, the kids and the jam kids I have was worthless. It's like, wow, this is beauty that I cannot get into. This is an amazing glory that I have no right to enter. And I really understood that. Man, no wonder Paul could say that because he really understood the worthlessness of man's work, of our, the towers that we built. But I knew as I was walking along golden walls, there was a gate coming up. And I knew the man standing at the gate knew me and because I knew his name. He would be Jesus waiting for me at the gate. I didn't end up finishing it, but God wanted to show me what was the shadow of the value of the death force. It wasn't the fire and the fear. It was miserableness, utter miserableness. And so, so that was a, yeah, that really showed me uh, when Christ was trying to break my ego, was trying to show like the things that you create with your hands don't stand a chance with my justice. 
with my righteousness. It's his righteousness that I got to stand on. And so that's what I love about this scripture was that he says it's so clearly righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so it's not your righteousness, it's his righteousness. In John, uh, in, in John 1, his letters, First John, he says, as he is, so are we in this world. If Christ is righteous, so are you right now. It always perplexes me when Christianity, Christians come up and say, oh, you can never go to heaven, you cannot be righteous, you've got you to accept Christ, then you'll become righteous. Okay, okay, I'll do that. But then they also, always, also say, okay, now you've fallen into sin, you're not unrighteous. No, wait a minute. Righteousness does not come from me in the first place. Now if I've sinned, now you're calling me unrighteous? I need sanctification, not righteousness. I need, to real, I need to realize back the righteousness of Christ that has been paid and given to me. And then it's, it's two different things. We're going back to works and grace. And so, and this is another thing that, uh, that verse 10 says, that I may know him, again, comes back to the worth of knowing Christ. Helping to understand his righteousness and our righteousness will enable us to understand the supremacy of Christ that so that we may know him. And the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. So, sufferings. I highlighted the word over there. I find that in my time, in my life, I'm so far, I'm most close to God and intimate with God when they're suffering. When there are good times, I'm a little, more, a little bit more relaxed in my Bible readings, a little more relaxed in my prayer life. You know, it's all going good. I don't, you know, yeah, God, it's all good. But man, when I am in need, that's when I realize who Jesus is. The worth of knowing Jesus. That's when you realize, oh my God, he surpasses everything. I, yeah, around this time, 10 years ago, was a, like a big breakthrough for me, right? So for us to know Christ, is, so intellectually, it's only a little bit, but it's more relationally. You know, and it always boggles my mind when someone says, prove to me the existence of God. I can't. I can, can you prove to me how permutation computation works? Or what's the formula for the theory of relativity and, and EMC squared? What is C squared? How do you derive C squared? Or give me ex- complex logarithms. Like, what is logarithms? You can't explain that. You want me to explain to you who God is through paper, through formulas? I can't. But he came in a way that we can understand. He came to have a relationship. That surpasses all our wisdom and knowledge. Knowing someone through a relationship, that's how God came. We can't explain to people who God is through formulas and such, but we can explain to him through who he is by his love. That's a real thing. And so, yeah, in terms of suffering-wise, it's when we are most intimate with Christ. And, you know, as a verse in, uh, was in Isaiah, he says, you know, God is close to the close-hearted, uh, to the broken-hearted. I've realized that. I'm pretty sure many of you have come to realize that. And you, that's when you understand the sweetness who Jesus is. And 10 years ago, that was something that I was going through. And, and I understood something. I asked. The question was put before me. Can you put me above everything else? And I told Jesus, no, I can't. I really researched. Intellectually, I want to say yes. But I told him, God, in my heart, I can't put you above everything. Because, you know, I want to build my career, I want to do this, I want to do that. I said, God, then you have to reveal to me that knowing you is worth it. The privilege of knowing you is worth it. And I remember in worship that time when I was just praying and, and praying about this and worshiping him, I was taken out from where I was standing. It was a personal encounter. And 
I understood a beauty that I had never known about anything else. And at that moment, it felt like five, ten minutes, but I know it was only a minute in real time. It was a supernatural experience. I cannot describe it, except that I understood that even if I have in the hospital bed, with no legs, no arms, with disease written on my body, I can still say, knowing Christ is worth it. doesn't matter anymore. That was a spiritual encounter. And I think every one of us can ask for that and know that He is knowing. That's the only way you will know this, the, the abundance of worth of knowing Christ. It's that, that personal encounter with Jesus. The understanding, of, and then you grow from that encounter. You don't live from that encounter, but you grow from it. And to me, those are the two things. It was a personal encounter, and then a personal relationship that really changed and shaped my view of who knowing Christ is—the supremacy of Christ, how good Christ is. So, yeah, I wrote down there: you can't pass a godly legacy without knowing Him. And I find it a little sad sometimes when I go through small towns or. I went to PEI recently, and it's a beautiful place, you know. They have churches through the villages, everywhere. Every church is own, every village has its own church. And, yeah, and even in Manitoba and other places, right? But there's something, there's a problem there. The people who are still going to the church are old. The young ones are not going in. The, even the old people, ah, they're going more for tradition. It's what they do on Sundays. Do they really love Jesus? Do, you know why? The problem is not knowing Christ enough. You see, familiarity has destroyed intimacy with Christ. They think they know of Jesus, but they don't know about him, and that's a problem. Don't be stuck in the trap of familiarity. It's intimacy that we need to be in. And there's a problem right now in so-called the Western world in North America. People think they know about Jesus. They're familiar with it, but they're not intimate with him. And how do we get intimate? It's through Christ. No one can come to the Father except through the Son. The sun has to be surpassed worth of surpass everything else that you own. Two things personal encounters and relationship. Two ways. And so in the next slide, it says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I like I highlight the word one thing. And later he says, later on it's about God in Christ Jesus. Right, so to know the one thing. Okay, the next slide. It's so it's in, from Luke ten. This is a great story of Mary and Martha. You know, we know the story. You know, Jesus goes to the town and he goes to Martha's house, and the two sisters and they are, you know, they're preparing and, and helping Jesus to get set up, preparing dinner and such. So Martha is the one that's going around working everything. You know, working here, getting ready. You know, building her own stuff, building her own legacy, and trying to do everything else. But what does Mary does? She sits at the feet of Jesus. You know, and then Martha actually gets exasperated and tells Jesus, don't you care that I'm the one doing all the work? <laughs> Look what Jesus said. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but the one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen a good portion. We shall not be taken away from her. In Psalms 27.4, the next one, David, man after God's heart. Why? Because this is why. The one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. They might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. The one thing. A lot of us do a lot of things, but we, we do not do the one thing that's necessary. 
sitting at the feet of Jesus, letting go, stop working, stop rowing, rowing the boat to the shore, wherever you want to go. I'll come to that, why I said that. Let it go. Stay on the feet of Jesus. Receive it first. You cannot give without... You only can give when it abounds in you, when it overflows out. When you are dry, that becomes works. And so, in finishing it off, just want to talk about this quick miracle that people quickly, you know, they, they, they go over it. They don't even realize it's a miracle, actually. Um, so this is just after Jesus fed the 5,000. And then he told the disciples, okay, you, you go ahead on the other side, and I'll join you later. I don't know why they never asked him, how are you going to join us? There's only one boat. But they thought he'll make it there. Right? So if you show the next slide, I'll show you the, the, where they were going. So that's where the feeding of the 5,000 is on the extreme right side. And then they're going to uh, Gennesaret or Kinneret, somewhere in between. That's where they were going to, right? So it's not that long. It's only like four or five miles long. and It's about, well, about six, seven miles long. It should have taken them three, four hours at most to do it. But if you read the, uh, the Bible, go back to the previous slide, please. Thanks. This is from John, but there's also a story in Matthew and Mark as well. They left in the evening, and they were still rowing 12 hours later. It should have taken something that taken three, four hours. They're taking 12 hours because of the waves and such like that. That's happening over there. And the disciples kept rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing. And this is a really cool part. It was 19. And when they rowed about three or four miles, that's all. After 12 hours of rowing, that's how far they've gone. Only the middle of it. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I... Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. See, it's in Mark where immediately comes a lot. Immediately Jesus went to this town. Immediately Jesus went out. Immediately the Spirit came. When John uses the word immediate, it's specific. It's for a reason. See, they were still only halfway through where they were supposed to be. But when Jesus entered the boat, the miracle was they landed on the shore immediately. This is a... For a lot of people, spiritually, you're battling something. You're rowing against the waves. You're trying to do something on your own. You're forgetting to invite Jesus in. And some, for some of you, you might be thinking, oh, it's too late. I'm a little bit old now, and what's going to happen? Don't worry. Invite Jesus in, and he'll bring you to the shore where you have to go. Whatever you have to get to, he will bring it there in time. That's who Jesus is. That's the glory. Whatever you feel you're lacking, all you go, oh, I'm so old. Or like, I don't know what to do yet. It's, it's, it's time is running out. Don't worry about that. Let him into the boat. The legacy will be fulfilled. So, I'm going to end off with a quick story. How many of you know this guy? Edward Kimball. Just a Sunday school teacher, you know. Not much of a, nothing's written much about him in history. You know, who knows what he did. But he did one specific thing. I love this about this story, talking about legacies. I can go to the Bible and talk to you about Rahab, the prostitute, and through the legacy, how David came and how Jesus came, like God redeems people in legacies-wise. But I'm going to just pick this real-life thing. So Edward Kimball, a Sunday school teacher, the next slide, talked about this thing that he did. I started downtown to Holton's shoe store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during the business hours. I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy looking for a little a particular boy. I determined to make up a dash for it and have it over at once. I went up to him and put my hand on his shoulder, and then I made my plea, and I felt it was just a really a very weak one. I don't know just the words I used, 
I simply told him of Christ's love for him, the love of Christ wanted in return. That was all there was of it. That little boy was no other than D.L. Moody, one of the great evangelists that could ever be. That was in the, in the early 19th and late 20th century. And D.L. Moody actually recounts this encounter. I said to myself, this is a very strange thing. Here's a man who has never seen me, saw me till lately, and is weeping over my sins. I had never even shed a tear about them. But I understand it now and know what is it to have passion for man's soul and weep over their sins. I don't remember what he said, but I can feel the power of that man's hand on my shoulder tonight. It was not long after that I was brought into the kingdom of God. The little kid that the Sunday school teacher was weeping for, he took a chance. So this might embarrass me and him, but I have to say about Christ's love for, the, for him. And you know what? It just didn't end there. Hey, kept moving. From D.L. Moody, in his meetings, was another preacher that was saved. His name was Wilbur Chapman, another great evangelist. He held a lot more meetings. Thousands and thousands of people came to his meetings. And after him was Billy Sunday, the ex-baseball player who became a preacher. And because of that, a lot more people were saved through him. And so from D.L. Moody to Wilbur Chapman, who was saved in D.L. Moody's uh, congregation. Billy Sunday was saved in Chapman's congregation. And Mordecai Ham was another great... Uh, he also brought Christianity onto radio waves, actually, in southern, in seven southern states. He was... Lots of people were saved. You're talking about a legacy for Sunday school teacher, right? And then finally, from Mordecai Ham's meetings, the one we know pretty well, Billy Graham. Between them, close to about 100 million people have saved through time and still being hearing that message, and still being transformed. Lives are still being touched. One Sunday school teacher decided to go and reach out to a boy and weep for him and tell him about Christ. Sunday school teacher wouldn't put this through. Wouldn't understand what his legacy would be. But now I can see and know what his legacy was. Don't fret. His legacy is yours. His glory is yours. And that's the great thing about Christ. He's giving it all. And that is our glory. That is a privilege that we can get onto his legacy. Stop rowing. And that, I'm just going to close it off in prayer. Lord, just pray that to give us that the earnestness of the Sunday school teacher Lord, in our heart. Lord, that not to be caught up in the world's monument building and buildings of, and of greatness that they want to build, but Lord, I pray that our heart will be sensitive to you. Let us change the legacy of our lives and of our children and our grandchildren, Lord. I pray that, Lord, that many more will come to know you through us. And thank you for that blessing. Thank you for the privilege. We thank you, Lord, for the taste of that glory and letting us through those golden walls that you have broke down so that we can enter. And all this I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.